So yeah, I've, I've been on staff at uh, Cornerstone Church, I guess February 1st was my 14th anniversary when I came on as a, a youth ministry intern during my last semester of Bible college. Um, and for the first eight years that I was there, I, I taught well, like 10, 11, 12 year olds pretty much every week. That was really where I really cut my teeth as a Bible teacher. And I loved it. And um, when when Jared mentioned you guys from the book of Mark, I just kind of said salivating. I used to, every other year with the youth group that I led, we'd go through the book of Mark. And I love Mark. I think it's, it's, it's so much fun. And so, um, but teaching kids, teaching kids, even at, at those ages, it was still predominantly church kids. And any of you guys who grew up in church, I think all of us, by the time we get to late elementary or junior high, we kind of go, yeah, I've heard all the stories. <laughs> yeah, I got it. Yeah, I've heard all of this before. And so the thing that I really loved doing was kind of like peeling back the onion a little bit. Okay, yes, I know you've probably heard this story and seen it acted out and done puppet shows of it and all that kind of stuff. But like, let's peel this back a little bit more and see a little bit more of it. And so I always found that, um, especially as I worked through a book like Mark that has a lot of stories in it, I would always ask two questions of any passage. What in this passage do I need to explain? And then what in this passage do I just need to get out of the way of? Because it's, it's apparent and it's something where if I can remove myself and just put these kids just face to face with God's word, or I guess their face in God's word, there's a, there's a momentum that God's word has that sometimes, even sometimes I feel like we have to dress it up. It's like, no, no, let it play, man. Just let it, let it go. And so um, what I began to do was so to, um, to look at stories. And even the ones we're at tonight was one where I felt like it definitely fits in that get out of the way kind of section because there's so much in it that I feel like is so apparent and so good. And so what I would love to do with you guys tonight um, is do something a little bit more interactive. What I'd love to do, we're going to look at basically Mark 4, chapter or chapter 4, verse 35, all the way through 543. So basically, the calming of the storm, the healing, of the, or the, the deliverance of the demon-possessed man, the uh, healing of the woman with the issue of blood, Jairus' daughter being raised, all of that in, in, in one chunk. <laughs> Um, but the way we're going to do it is this. I would love for us to just read through it together, and then I'm going to split you guys up into three groups and give you guys about ten minutes or so to, to look at each, or look at one of those stories and ask some kind of observation-based questions and interpretation-based questions off of it together. Does that sound okay? Mm-hmm. All right. I know that for some of y'all, it's the end of the day. Some of you guys got early mornings. <laughs> you were telling me that. So I, I would I would uh, I, I don't take for granted at all that I'm using what left of your mental energy for the day. And so uh, I hope that this is beneficial to you. Um, so we'll take, I'll give you guys about 10 minutes or so to discuss it, and then we'll bring it back together, and I'll just, and then we'll just kind of talk together about what you were seeing in it. Um, and then at the end, I'll kind of talk about what I see as how these three episodes fit together. What, what are some of the things that Mark is the author, is the arranger of these stories, is seeking to communicate by putting these ones together. Um, so first, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up Mark 4, start in verse 35. I would love it if I could have some volunteers to read this. If you feel passionate about uh, reading God's Word, you want, you want to read it out loud. Um, not you, but you're, you're doing good. You're in kindergarten. You're learning how to read. And another year or two, you're doing so good. Um, so maybe the first person I'll have read basically the, the, the episode of the calming of the storm. So basically 435 through the end of the chapter. You want to do that, David? And then I'll have the next person read the next one and so forth. So go for it, David. Uh, on that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. 
And other boats were with him, with him, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But when, it, but when, but he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said, "Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing?" And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, "Peace, be still." And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still have, have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Thank you. Let's so read 5, 1 through 20. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of Gersonus. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately they met him out of the tomb, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out in a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjourn you by God. Do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Uh, now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, say, saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirit came out and entered the pigs and the herd and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank and into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it to the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting out into the boat, the man who had been possessed with the demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis uh, how, uh, how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Thank you. Can somebody read 21 through the end of that chapter? And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside a sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. 
And there was a woman who had discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garment, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in and fear, with fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. When he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, but he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, Little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. So this is a, an action-packed day or so for Jesus, right? There's a lot going on here. And there's a lot that comes up in these, these uh, episodes that I think are, are emblematic. The thing that, that, that is really important to keep in mind anytime we're looking at Jesus' miracles, and we, you've already looked at several in this book already, is that first and foremost, the thing to keep in mind with Jesus' miracles is to ask the question, what does this show me about who he is? Not first and foremost, what's going on with the person, what's the situation, though all of that is important. The number one thing we're looking for in every miracle account is what does this show me about who Jesus is? And we learned in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus' initial message was, the time has come. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. So what does this tell me about who Jesus is and what this whole kingdom of God thing is all about? So what I'm going to ask you to do now is I'm going to get you guys into three groups. And you're going to ask those questions as you look at each section of this. Number one, what does this story teach me about who Jesus is? Number two, what problem is presented in this story? And how does Jesus address the problem? And then the third question is, one of the things that's common in all these stories is the two themes of fear and faith pop up in each one of them. And so the third question is, how do you see fear and faith at play in these stories? Does that make sense? Well, they're probably multiple. Awesome. All right, well, let's uh, let's start. Even though the purpose of uh, reading through the whole passage together was that even though in your conversations you were focused on one part, you have the rest of the context in your mind as well. And so um, let's start with our uh, storm calming group. Okay. 
What, what, what did you guys talk about? How well did you, you don't have to take questions in order, but just like what were some of the main things that stuck out to you from the conversations, the things you picked up? From the story? Um, we talked about how uh, this is like one of the first stories that we see that Jesus has control over the earth, okay. not just over our bodies. And so it's actually they, the disciples say, like, who is this that he has control? over the world like that so that's significant and um they uh the problem was the storm in like a worldly sense but really a lack of faith in a spiritual sense and we talked about how it's not really that they woke him up it's how they woke him up because they were like automatically assuming like that he didn't care that he couldn't do anything they were gonna die and we kind of were saying like if they had said hey you know like could you go out there and do the thing and just have like confidence in it, then it, he wouldn't have rebuked them. Yeah. But um, the he addressed it by rebuking the storm, but also correcting how they thought about mm. their faith. Yeah, yeah. There's when we talk about the problem <coughs> in that story, there is the there is the physical, tangible problem of what's what's going on with the elements when they're on the lake. But even more so, there's the there's that internal problem. And Jesus is the master of that, right? We, we saw that when, when the, the paralytic is lowered through the roof. Everybody goes, I know what this dude's problem is. He can't walk. Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. It's like, Jesus, you're reading from the same script we are. <laughs> like, it seemed very clear what you're supposed to do. But he's able to always connect the presenting, the, 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 the physical outward thing with what's going on. So that's a huge part. Absolutely. Why is the storm a problem? Let's, let's think just in a, in a bigger picture sense. Why is it good news that Jesus can command the, the non-personal forces of nature? More than just a cool party trick. Why is that good news? It just shows that he's all-powerful. Okay. That there's nothing he can't touch. Because I think especially with nature... It just seems so much bigger than us, and we're kind of just left to whatever it will do. But he showed in this that he can control all things. Okay, yeah, this is something we don't even... Even to this day, with all our cool technology and stuff, we don't control that. Mm-hmm. We definitely don't control that. The big sure. one's coming. That's right, man. Since, I've been, since I was born, the big one's been coming. Yeah, it's a problem because... You weren't here for Northridge? I, I was here for it, but then this... The very next day on the news, this probably wasn't the big one. It's like, oh. no! There's a bigger one? It's terrifying, man. It's so scary. But it's good news because the because nature can cause suffering. You know? And yeah. if Jesus is in control of it and he cares, then he can alleviate suffering. Yeah. I mean, in the bigger picture biblical story, we see, especially a place like Romans 8, where Paul talks about the creation, the physical creation itself, being in a bondage to decay, a being subjected to frustration, that even for the beauty and power of the natural world, it misfires. It, it, there's something off kilter about it. There's, it's, it's not working rightly. And even these things of like, I mean, just the way that storm systems and how all that works is just such a marvel, but it can be such a destructive marvel at the same time. Uh, that there is, there is the need, which probably before the modern period, when when our our fathers and grandfathers truly believed that they could conquer the forces of nature and bend it to our will, 
every generation of humans have got, has gone, we are at the mercy of nature. And then all of a sudden, big wildfires come through California and we go, oh my gosh, maybe we haven't bent the natural world to our will. But this is, when we talk about a deep-seated human need, a, a, we need protection from this very world that we live in because it does not always work right. Now, one of the things I think we've become much more aware of is how, in many ways, the natural world often needs protection from humans. We can do wrong things to it as well. But this is a, a relationship on both sides that is not working in harmony. There is not peace yet. But to see Jesus' ability to speak peace to the natural world, to the physical creation, that's really good news, right? That's really good What else did you guys see? Fear and faith. Let's talk about that one. We addressed it a little bit. We talked about how, you know, in the beginning, they were fearful. And in my head, it's like that was their sinful fear. Mm -hmm. But after Jesus says, you know, who are, like, why are you fearing me or whatever, and rebukes them, then it also says they feared him. Mm -hmm. And so I'm like, I'm curious. We were talking about, it's like, that was the righteous fear. You know how we're supposed to fear the Lord? So, like, it, in my head, it went from, you know, sinful fear of not trusting the Lord and, and thinking they're going to die to maybe righteous fear of the Lord mm. and, like, putting him in his place. Mm. Yeah, did you, did you guys pick up on that as well? Like, at the end of that story, it's not that the disciples aren't afraid anymore. Right. It's just the object of their fear. That's true. Right? They're terrified of the wind and the waves. Jesus calms it and it says they're filled with great fear. Who is this that can command the wind and the waves? Hmm. And you're going, okay, hold on. <laughs> Am I okay with that? I think for most of, a lot of us, if you, again, if you've grown up around Christianity, I'm not assuming any, any of you have or all of you have, but... In the American church, we have done a good job with a cuddly Jesus that calms our fears. Not necessarily with the Jesus that says, you ain't seen nothing yet. Okay, remember, okay, when I was a kid, I remember the first Batman came out with Michael Keaton. And there's that scene where, like, on the news, they've got clips of the Batman doing all these kind of things. And then the Joker, Jack Nicholson's watching as he's flipping through, he's getting all mad. And he turns on the TV and he goes, Wait till they get a load of me. There's something to that in this. You think that's a big deal? You don't know who I am yet. Right? And one of the things we've seen in this first part of Mark, one of one of the themes of the first part leading up to chapter seven is who is Jesus? We see these questions all over. You see people venturing their opinion. His family thinks he's crazy. The religious leaders think he's empowered by a demon. The only ones who seem to be getting it right are the demons. And Jesus says, I don't want to hear it from you. And here's these men who've left everything to follow Jesus. I mean, if you've walked with God for any, any length of time, do you resonate with this story a little bit? Do you resonate with that, that sense of Jesus? I thought you had a, I had you figured out. I mean, I knew you were great, but I didn't know you were that great. I knew you were powerful, but I didn't know you were that powerful. If you feel like you have gotten comfortable with the vision of Jesus, with the view of Jesus that you've had for the last several years, there is more to him that you have yet to see than what you understand already. Mm -hmm. And that's this life with Jesus. Whatever box you put him in, 
he's going to bust out of that box and show you I am bigger than you know. Right? So you do see in this story, Jesus says to them, why are you afraid? Do you, do you not yet have faith? And you see the disciples go, okay, now we see. We don't need to fear the, the storm, but man, this doesn't completely alleviate our fear. It redirects it, right? There's one place that I think is really uh, illustrative of this. If you, flip, if you ever bought flip back to Exodus chapter 15. There's something that happens uh, uh, with the people of Israel that I think is very similar to what's happening here. Exodus chapter 15, or actually, actually 14, the very end of chapter 14. Exodus chapter 14 is the story of the parting of the Red Sea. Familiar with that story? Yep. The people of Israel have come out of slavery in Egypt. Pharaoh says, finally, you can go. Then he changes his mind, comes after him with the army. They're pinned up against the, uh, uh, the sea. They can't get through. What are we going to do? Did God bring us out here to die? And Moses says, guys, now you will see the power of the Lord. Mm-hmm. He himself will fight for you. You need only to be still. Oh, wait, that sounds familiar. That's what Jesus just said to the waves in our story. Be still. So he parts the sea, the people of Israel go through on dry land. And then he says, Moses, okay, now raise your staff, and the wind's going to switch, the water's going to come back down, drowns Pharaoh and all his armies. At the end of this whole ordeal, in Exodus chapter 14, verse 30, it says this. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord. And they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. You see, in this event as well, they're fearful of the armies of Egypt. They're fearful of Pharaoh and his armies. At the end, it's not that they're not afraid anymore, but the object of their fear is shifted. They feared the Lord and they believed him. Right? Sometimes we think that these are opposites. That, I mean, even we'll have a verse like in 1 John where it says the perfect love drives out all fear. Yes, absolutely, but we, we never just interpret a verse in isolation, right? <laughs> Within these larger concepts like this, we see even what John is saying is perf- the perfect love of God drives out our fear of everything but him. That right fear of him. Does that make sense? Fear plays a different role. The next story. Okay, our our men that talked about the man with the legion of demons. What, what did you guys see in us? Thank you guys so much for your insight. Really helped. What do you got? Uh, we saw that it revealed that Jesus was a spiritual healer. Um, that he had authority over demons, legions of demons. Um, that he was feared by the demons, um, that he was known by the demons. They identified him as the son of the Most High God. Um, and we talked about how he like interacts. Like, they're the ones who come up with the pig idea. Mm-hmm. So he's like interactive. Mm-hmm. Um, some problems we talked about were um, for the town or for this this community. It was that a demon was controlling someone, making them uncontrollable. Mm-hmm. Um, but then after the healing, a problem for the man was that he wasn't accepted into that. 
community, mm. um, they were afraid. They didn't like see that he was healed and throw a party and celebrate. They were like afraid and wanted Jesus to leave, mm. and the man wanted to leave with them. Mm. So it obviously wasn't like real popular. <laughs> um, and then just kind of like generally that Jesus was like freaking people out and kind of breaking their status quo. Mm and that they'd rather just not deal with it than have to dive into uncomfortable territory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's important when we talk about Jesus's exorcism miracles, I think it's, I think it's helpful to distinguish and use the language of, of victory more so than the language of healing. Mm-hmm. Make sense? Healing miracles have to do with things like paralysis. A woman with an issue of blood that we'll talk about in a second. And demon possession isn't necessarily a malady, a physical or medical illness. It is a spiritual entity, a spiritual being oppressing this man, right? You do not, this is not the, he is not the antagonist in your horror movie out there trying to get the the innocent people. Like, no, no, this man is the victim in the story, right? You hear that, and that he is the one who can only find some sort of solace in and amongst the tombs, and even there, is constantly crying out, even trying to lash himself, just get this out of me however I can. This man is so completely victimized and oppressed in this situation. I think that's something important to keep in mind. Most often in the Gospels, demon-possessed people are not are not um, well, definitely not good, but they're, they're not these like active villains. Not only that, here's the interesting thing. Jesus, from the beginning, has never been afraid to tell people to repent. We never see him tell a demon possessed person to repent. He commands the demons out of them. Isn't that interesting? He commands the demons out of them. And so again, what, what I think is important when we look at the exorcism miracles, this is Jesus the warrior. This is Jesus the champion, like David with Goliath, going out there to do battle against Satan and his forces. And I think what you see, what you brought up when we talk about what does this reveal about Jesus? Jesus doesn't have to introduce himself to the demons in this man. They run to him and go, hold on, we know who you are, right? You are the son of the That's, I mean, I think that's just powerful to see Jesus here as the warrior, the one, the one fighting. And so again, as you mentioned, the problem that we see in this is that demons, spiritual beings created by God but yet rebellious against God, oppress people, torment people. This is a big problem. This is not just an ancient problem. What's the good news in this? The demons have to do what Jesus says. Right? They, they beg Jesus, send us the pigs. Right? Now there's something about this, this part of the story that I think is, it would, it would be humorous to a Jewish person. A man who's possessed by a legion of unclean spirits, nearby in the hills, is a legion, a 2,000 strong herd of pigs. This is about the dirtiest, most unclean situation that you could, you could imagine, right? 
just mix in some bodily fluids and you've got like the triumvirate of like uncleanness in this whole thing. But the way that Jesus navigates through this is not only does he deal with the unclean spirits, he deals with the unclean animals and he preserves the man. He preserves the man and purifies him, right? Which is so gracious. But then again, I think we, we talked about this a little bit. Clayton, maybe you got a little bit more on this. How do you see, in this story, there's not as much explicitly about faith in this story, but there's a lot about fear. So how, did, how do you see fear playing in this story? How did you guys talk about it? Uh, the community is, like, afraid of, um, of what has happened, of the, just the change in the, in the dynamic. Uh, the demons are afraid of Jesus. Um, it's kind of like they I think like you said earlier they just kind of want to push it they don't want to deal with that fear they can't handle it or they they just want to get that away from them kind of they don't want to place their put like with the waves in the sea they don't want to actually trust Jesus now mm-hmm. and put their fear rightly in him but they just are kind of like get I don't know what I'm scared of if it's Jesus or the demons, or the, or that we're losing our livelihood, or whatever it is, but but just get away from us. Yeah, right. There are some who think that the the biggest motivating factor for the people in the town is like Jesus is bad for business. Like he just destroyed two thousand pigs. That's a lot of money, right there, right? I was thinking that you know they're Gentiles, so they're not obviously um, um, serving Yahweh. They don't know Yahweh, and they don't they don't have prophets that that um, in their I guess history so they probably had they probably had some type of you know some sorcery or whatever but never like this so they're probably just like this is just unknown to them they're probably freaked out they're like no we, we, we don't have anything to do with this you know but but Israel has this within their families and their heritage so they kind of they kind of get it but at the same time they're just like they have a different fear so they're just like um, this is uncommon they're like no way yeah That's, right yeah. The word you use of known, I think, is, is a key part of this. They've tried every trick in the books to somehow control this man. As a matter of fact, that the, the word that's used there is, I don't know, I forget where exactly it is, but it talks about they, they tried to tame this man. It's the word that's used for taming animals. This man is so belligerent and berserk because of these demons within him that like they can't even inter- interact with him as a human. They're trying to bridle him and tie him up like, a, like an unruly dog. They don't know what to do. They can't tie him. They can't chain him. He's breaking everything. Okay, as long as he stays out in the tomb, he scares us, but we've gotten used to him. This is a known fear. They run up on the situation, see the pigs bobbing in the water, see this man now clothed and in his right mind, and they go, okay, but we don't know what to do with that. We know what to do with this guy. Keep him on the outskirts. Put him out in the tomb. So he'll be... Um, crying and yelling, and we'll just tell our kids. Our kids will know. They'll be up in the, at night going, oh my gosh, I hear the scary man out in the hills. It's okay. He stays out there. He won't come in. It's okay. We can talk to him, right? But this one, this guy who doesn't respect those kind of boundaries, who comes into our territory, drowns our pigs, and takes this dude that none of us can control and makes him, how do you control him? Where is he going to stay put? Right? So, again, their fear is redirected. They're no longer afraid of the man with the legion of demons. They're afraid of Jesus. The difference between the apostles is they go, you need to go. 
rather than, okay, we don't get this yet, but we're still with you. You need to go. We don't know what to do with you. We would rather stick with the unknown fear that we can't, or the known fear that we can't control, than deal with you, this unknown fear, this power that we don't know what to do. Right? Now, there are three different times in this story that, that Jesus is begged to do something. The demons beg him to send them in the pigs. And what does Jesus say? Well, he didn't say it, but what does he do? Yeah, yeah, go to the pigs, right? The people of the town beg Jesus to leave their country. And what does Jesus do? He gets in the boat to go. The man, now liberated from these oppressing demons, begs Jesus to take him away. And what does Jesus say? Why? Like, seriously, this is one of those, this is one of those parts of this book that's tough for now. Why? He called tax collectors. He called fishermen. He called people all over the place to follow you. Here's one guy who's asking, volunteering, and you tell him no. Why? What do you think? Why does he tell him no? Maybe he can better spread the gospel like in his hometown and not go with Jesus hmm. because he has witnessed the miracle. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, he gives him something to do. He doesn't say, no, sorry, you can't go. He says, no, you're not going to come with me, but here, here's what I want you to do. What does he tell him to do? Go home. What's that? Go home. Go home and tell your family all that God has done. Yeah, and how much mercy he's had on you, right? Now again, we've been going, you guys have been going through Mark up to this point. And even those of you who looked at the story with Jairus and the daughter, Jesus has more regularly told, told people who he did miracles for, don't say anything. But he tells this guy, go home and tell everyone. They don't want me here. They don't want me here. But I'm not going to leave them without a witness. Right? And all of that I will say. He leaves behind a man who's no longer possessed by unclean spirits. Because in a couple of years, coming behind that man are going to be a bunch of people who are possessed not by unclean spirits, but by the Holy Spirit to continue witnessing in that region. He is kind of an advanced scout. Now, this is a lot for this dude to process on the first day of his new life, right? His first day of freedom. Okay, now, go, be a missionary. But this is what Jesus calls him to do, right? Because ultimately, these miracles are not just about how it benefited that man. It's about the revelation of who Jesus is. They've asked me to leave. I can't really do that with you. <laughs> you don't have to stay in the tombs anymore. Go spread the news, right? Is really so we see, when we're talking about fear and faith, Jesus is not shy about redirecting people's fears to himself. You're afraid of winning weights. You're afraid of evil spirits. Wait till you get a load of me. Right? Does it... Are, sorry. Are these people definitely not Jewish? Um, most likely because right after that we have the mention of this area like the Decapolis. The Decapolis was a collection of ten, Deca being ten, Paulus being city, ten Roman cities up in like that area of what's kind of modern day Syria. So yes, this would have been outskirts. It's, it's kind of a buffer area, so you probably had some like people of Jewish descent. It's kind of like any, anything like that. They probably were familiar with Jewish thought and concepts. Just as the Jewish people were pretty familiar with Roman thought and concepts, but yeah, by and large, I think the presence of that many pigs and stuff means you're 
Yeah, you're not in Kansas anymore. <laughs> yeah, good question. So I, maybe it was because of that. Yeah. His mission, because he's going to say a little bit later when we get to like the Syrophoenician woman, that my mission is to the lost sheep of Israel. My mission is to the people of Abraham. That's where we're starting. Not to stay, keep it there. But so then I can unleash them to go to the nations. But he's not afraid to venture out to these gentle, tile areas to, um, to prepare the soil. You know what I mean? To, to get things ready for the party. Let's make sure we get to this last one. This last story. Which it's kind of our classic Mark sandwich, right? Mm -hmm. He starts a story, another story in the middle, and then he finishes the first story again. But this is one where it seems like he does this sandwich technique because this is actually the way it happened. On the way to dealing with Jairus' daughter, this other thing comes up. So, so talk to us about what you guys are talking about. Yeah, so we shared that um, Jesus had compassion towards the women because he was, you know, he was obviously busy on his way to see the ruler's daughter. So it would have been really easy for him to not stop and make time. But I think um, the woman, you know, she obviously needed Jesus' help. And it's interesting how he gave her the opportunity to tell the truth. Because he obviously knew who touched his garments. But I think part of the faith was that he honored the woman was brave enough to come forward and tell the whole truth. Mm. Um, so we kind of share about, you know, even though it was probably a not very comfortable situation for the woman to um, admit that she was the one that touched Jesus, but I think she had enough faith to enable her to do that. Mm -hmm. And also the way that Jesus has responded, right? Because we were just chatting about like, if she were to lie, what, what would Jesus have done, you know, um, in response to, to that type of behavior? Mm -hmm. And then the other thing that we chatted was, um, even though they were fearful, um, but they overcame their fear with faith. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what Jesus really value because I think he he mentioned um, don't be fearful just believe and I think that takes a lot to I guess have the emotion of fear but also knowing that um, Jesus is powerful enough to do the impossible because even to cure the daughter because you know they weren't even sure it's even worth his time because she was dead already so I think there was a lot of, um, I guess, faith in those two stories that even though like it's okay to have the fearful emotions, but Jesus is really able to honor those people that are faithful. Mm -hmm. so. Mm -hmm. so good, yeah. I mean, just the way that Jesus forces the issue. This mm -hmm. anonymous, under-the-radar under thing happens with this woman. And again, this is one of those things where you get into questions of how much omniscience did Jesus have in his incarnation? We know that God knows everything, beginning, end, possible, actual, all of that. Did Jesus, in his humanity, possess that? Because on the one hand, you could say he's setting this whole thing up to drive where she's got to come forward. He could have just went, it was you, right? Or this could be one of those moments where, again, like, I know that power went out from me to heal. Who was this? Who did this? Something happened, and I want to know what it was, right? To me, it doesn't violate or, or disrupt my view of Jesus at all to, to, to be on either side of that. 
Because he's turning around going, okay, there's, again, like, there, there's a couple of, like, like dumb sitcom dad moments in this, in the way that the disciples talk to Jesus, right? He's asleep on the boat in the middle of a storm. Don't you even care, Dad? Wake up! Let's go, right? They're in a crowd, people thronging all around. Who touched me? Dad, seriously, you're asking who touched you? We're like human cattle going through this, right? He says, no, 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 no. And he forces this issue where this woman, this is where the, where the fear comes in, she comes trembling with fear. Mm-hmm. Right? But I think you're right. I get, the part I'm trying to drive at at this is, is sometimes we, we, we think that um, fear and faith are like two magnets that are opposite polarity where they're going to push away from each other. And I think what we see in Scripture is that actually no, that, that these two notions are, are more closely related than we think. Fear has to do with a proper estimation of one who is greater and higher and more powerful and outside of your control. Right? Who is greater or higher or more powerful or more completely in control of everything than God? So he is the only right object of that fear, that sense of you are greater, I am less. But it's not a repulsive fear. It's that if you are the greatest thing that there ever is and you tell me come, nothing's going to hold you back from me. Nothing's going to keep me from you. So the way that faith and fear coalesce is in the act of drawing near to this God. I don't control you. I don't dictate turns to you. You are God. I am not. You are Lord. You are King. But I'm coming to you. I'm going to draw near to you. That's what you see this trembling woman do, which is so remarkable, right? One of the other things that I think is so powerful in this is, did you, did you catch how much, like, like, how often, like, no one language comes up in this? No one was able to bind the demon-possessed man. She spent all of her money on the doctors, and none of the doctors could heal the situation. Like, Jesus really is coming in in these stories to people who have exhausted every option that they know of. It seems in that way Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue, man of means and standing and status in the community. Jesus probably wasn't, he he may not have been the first person that, that, that uh, Jairus went to to deal with the daughter. But again, it's she's on death's door. Can you do anything, right? Like in all of these. Who can calm the wind and the waves? No one can do that. In each one of these things, you see Jesus coming in a situation that no other person can, can make something happen. And he brings healing, and he brings new life, and he does the impossible. He does what only God can do, right? I think that's what's so cool in even what he says to the, to the demon-possessed man at the end of it. Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. The Lord. The, the typical way that the Jewish people would refer to God the Father, right? Tell how much the Lord has done for you. So the man goes home in the very next verse. He went away and began to proclaim to the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. Do you see the implicit theology that Mark is teaching us here? When Jesus acts, it is the Lord who acts. You want to know who the Lord is? The Lord is Jesus. Like there is the deity of Christ on display in these stories in such a beautiful way. Now, when we talk about fear, there's that other place in the statement that that that, um, that Jesus says to Jairus after the people come and say your your daughter's died. Don't bother to teach her. Did you guys discuss that one? I know we only had like 10 minutes. You guys had the longest. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Cool. 
Was there anything else, like as, as you guys talked together, that you wanted to bring up about that? Please come. If you, if you lay your hands on her, she'll be healed. There is a confession of faith in that. My daughter is dying. If you come and lay your hands on her, she will be healed. The friends come and say, Hey, buddy, she's gone. It's time to grieve now. We've actually got everybody together, and the grieving has already started. The door's closed on this one, right? And I think what Jesus is saying here is, is, is in no way... A rebuke. This is Jesus saying, hold on. Faith brought you to me. Your, your, your belief that I could do something about this brought you to me. And we were on the way, and this woman, her faith that if she just reached out and touched the hem of my garment, something would happen, has kind of disrupted our progress. And I just looked at her and said, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Go in wholeness. Be restored not just physically, but to your relationships with your family. Be a part of the community again. Everybody else that she might have touched, don't worry. You're not unclean because of her, because she is now clean. Go in peace. Jairus, I know they're telling you. I just overheard they're telling you that it's done. But the faith that brought you here, keep going. It's cool. There's this is actually a place here in this verse, in, in 36, where... Greek tenses, super nerdy, I'm going to get super nerdy for Greek tenses become really important. Jesus is using the Greek present tense, which refers to ongoing continuous action. A better way to translate this would be, don't keep being fearful, keep on believing. Right? It's not just the don't fear, believe, talking about something you haven't been doing yet. He's saying, Acknowledging it was your faith, your belief that I could do something that brought you here. And I'm saying to you, don't stop believing. Hold on to that feeling. <laughs> so they keep walking. They come to the house. And Jesus says the most seemingly tone-deaf, dumb sitcom dad thing you could say to a group of people morning. What's everybody crying about? Come on, she's just asleep. And the people almost like that kind of like, this person is so oblivious, we don't know what to do other than awkwardly laugh. Like, who, who is this nut job? What does he think? Right? But he comes in. Just the, the big three. Just Peter, James, and John. And her parents. And he says, okay, little girl, it's time to wake up, right? Don't be fearful. Keep believing. The door is closed, but guess what? I can open up that closed door. I can open up the door of death. I can make death into sleep. Right? Now, the last couple of minutes. What are the threads we see that connect across all these stories? We've talked a lot about fear and faith. What else do you see that connects these stories together? 
looking at leads to hope. Yeah, definitely. What's been impossible is not impossible. These are the most uncontrollable things. The weather, a legion of demons, death. Like nothing, any, like you were saying, nothing anybody can do about any of those things. They're the most extreme kind of versions of those things. Um, and to Jesus, it's like, no big deal. I want you to have faith. Yeah. You get me as a teacher. You get me as a miracle worker. But let me keep busting that box open. Bigger than you see right now. Here's one I think is just kind of ironic and and beautiful. At the beginning of this chapter, where is Jesus and what's he doing? Or at the beginning of the section we looked at? He's traveling. Okay, he's on a boat. And what's he doing on the boat? Sleeping. Sleeping. What do his disciples say to him? Wake up. Don't you care that we're dying? Now again, this could have been them overreacting or just in blind terror at the storm. But again, Mark doesn't mince words. Does Jesus care that people are dying? Does Jesus care that people are oppressed by evil spirits? Does Jesus care that the forces of nature that he created to be wholesome and conducive to life and flourishing on earth become destructive and deadly? Does he care about a woman who spent all her money trying to get better and is still sick? Yes, absolutely he cares. So he wakes up and does something about it. Flip to the end of the story. And what is Jesus doing? Hey, this girl. is waking someone. Waking someone from, from their sleep, right? There's just a cool kind of parallelism there. Jesus, wake up. Do you care that we're dying? Yeah, I'm going to go to someone who's dead and wake them up. Mm-hmm. Do you care? Do I care that you're perishing? That's exactly why I'm here. All of the brokenness, all of the hardship, I'm here to bring a resolution to that. But as of yet, even in the day of Jesus, even in our day, we don't see the resolution of that everywhere. Right? Jesus did not heal every single person. He did not deliver every person oppressed by demons. Even the people he did, this little girl... She would eventually grow old and die again, right? The woman that he healed of this flow of blood, as she continued to age, other ailments would come along. These were temporary reprieves. So does that mean that all that Jesus can do is just give us a little bit more time? Well, what are these miracles revealing about the nature of the kingdom that Jesus is bringing? And this is where I would turn you back to what happens just before what we started reading tonight, what we saw at the end of our little video here. The parable of the mustard seed. What's that parable about, if you remember? This one's not the faith to move mountains one. This is this is the other mustard seed one. What's that? The word okay. growing. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So what will we compare the kingdom of God? It's like a mustard seed. It's one of the smallest seeds that there are. Inconsequential, easy to miss. You plant it in the ground, though. Give it time, and what happens? It grows bigger than any other plant in the garden, and the birds take shelter in its shade. Right? What we're seeing in these miracles 
is the mustard seed in action. Jesus heals a single bleeding woman. Small, inconsequential in the grand scheme of human suffering. But that little mustard seed is going to grow. And one day Jesus promises that he will do away with all sickness. And he will wipe away every tear from every eye. Jesus grants temporary reprieve and new life from death to this girl. But what happens at the end of this book when Jesus himself is raised from his death is a different type of resurrection. This is resurrection unto eternal life. And one day Jesus promises that death itself will be no more. That death will be thrown into the lake of fire. Now think about that. Jesus takes a legion of demons out of one man, puts it in pigs, and then drowns it in a lake of water. At the end of Revelation, what does the kingdom look like? Satan and all his minions are forever thrown into not a lake of water, but a lake of Right? In all of these things, Jesus is giving us small tastes, but real tastes. These are teaser trailers, right? Actual footage of the movie that we'll see on opening night. To whet our appetite for, to desire that. The miracles of Jesus are meant to reveal to us who Jesus is, what his kingdom is about. So that way we no longer fear the wrong things. And our fear is redirected to him. And our desire is redirected to him. We say like he taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We appreciate and we marvel and we worship you for the mustard seed, but we want to sit in the shade under the tree of that kingdom. We are not meant to be satisfied with these accounts. These are appetizers to whet our appetite for the full banquet to come. Does that make sense? And just as sure as Jesus said to that little girl, it's time to wake up of that experience is one day coming. That's what this gospel is all about. Wet our appetite for the kingdom so we live like we can't wait for it to come even as we begin to experience a taste of it. Amen? Amen. Amen. Can I pray for us? Jesus, we exalt you as the one who can do what we cannot. You can say to wind and waves, peace, be still. You can say to the forces of Satan, no, you must leave. And they have to do what you say. You can even in some way, whether you knew who she was or that was a moment where God's power, the power of the Holy Spirit was just working through you in a way where you realize it in the moment as well, you can heal what no physician can heal. You can even say to those in their graves, arise, it's time to wake up. And one day you will, Lord Jesus, in the midst of the flashy things that occupy our times and our minds, in the midst of the, the scary things that often do paralyze us, Lord Jesus, would you redirect, as you so lovingly and powerfully do, would you redirect our fear toward you? Would you redirect our faith towards you? And would those things come together in a way where we say, nothing's going to get between me and pursuing Jesus? Because I want to taste that fullness of the kingdom when it comes. I want to sit under the shade of that mustard tree in the fullness of what you have for us. You are surely bringing it. And so we ask you, as you told us to ask, come, Lord Jesus, bring the fullness of your kingdom. We ask this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.